Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we acknowledge that unless you had reached down and drawn our hearts to yourself, we would be rebels still. Unless you, by your grace and power, wrestled us away from ourselves, we would never, ever be inclined to keep your commands. And so today, we remember. We remember our Lord Jesus Christ, who has made the ultimate sacrifice in all of human history by taking our sins upon himself, nailing them to the cross where we bear them no more. Praise our Lord. I pray, O oh God, this morning that we might reflect deeply on the truth of the gospel and that we might celebrate the great joy of our salvation in very practical ways, O oh God. For you are a very, very practical God. And we thank you that we serve you and we are drawn to love you. And I pray that the word of God this morning might come alive to us and that your message might speak powerfully to our hearts and that we might respond with great willingness and energy, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I left you an assignment this week. How many remember their assignment? This is very encouraging. Five of you. How many know John 3.16? What are you supposed to know today? John 7, or Hebrews. <laughs> Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, come with me, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for us. That is a foundational verse to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know John 3.16, but you need to know Hebrews 7.25 as well. It needs to be hidden in your heart and there for all time as you reflect upon the immensity of your salvation and the security of your salvation. You are held because Jesus holds you. You are held because he is a forever high priest in the presence of the Father praying for you, praying for you by name like he did for Peter and the disciples. 
that our faith might not falter, that we might not fall to temptation, that we might not cave in to our belief, from our beliefs, that we might not lose heart, that we might stand up against those who reject and oppose and persecute, that we might defend our Lord with great loyalty and courage. This our Savior does for us every day, every single day, and therefore he is able to save completely, forever, to the uttermost, those who come to God through him. No one else may be saved. You have to come to Jesus. And so it brings us to math, or Hebrews chapter 8. I, for some reason, want to be drawn to the Gospels. But Hebrews is really the Gospel 30 years later. It is immense in its Gospel truth. And he starts out in the text by saying, the point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest, praise God, who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. That's what's happening right now. Our Savior, the triune God, in the description here of this place of majesty, as I said in the first group, I don't begin to have the mental capacity to try and fully explain the Trinity to you, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, and descriptions like this where the Son of God sits at the right hand of majesty, sits at the place of authority with the Father in heaven. I, I can't begin to describe this to you, but quite frankly, the description is for feeble human minds to try and grasp something that's, that's unfathomable. How in the world do we have this one God and the expression in three persons? But we do know this, that at the very power center of the universe is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, on our behalf. And that's what we do know. And that's what the preacher was quite excited about as he was giving this sermon, as a man of courage. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. And what did he offer? Himself. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at, the at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned in Exodus 25, verse 40, when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. God brought the blueprint of the heavenly tabernacle to Moses' awareness and said to him, I want you to create on earth something 
precisely representing what is going on in heaven. That's why it was imperative that it was established exactly as God had given it to Moses. But the writer is quick to say here, it's merely a copy, a shadow. When we think about a shadow of something, whether it be a shadow of a person, it's, it's a very limited bit of information. Uh, you know it's the shadow of a person, but we could line up a bunch of guys and a bunch of shadows and we wouldn't know exactly which guy it necessarily was. And so it was with the old covenant system. It was a copy, a shadow. You've perhaps wondered, and if you haven't, I'm going to surface the question this morning. Why is it that we pay so little attention or at at the very minimum, we do not practice the particular descriptions of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament ceremonial system. There aren't priests. We don't have ritual. We don't have altars. We don't have uh, censers. We don't have sacrifices. We don't, all of the descriptions of the Old Testament of all of that precision, we virtually ignore in terms of our own practice. Why is that? The preacher of the book of Hebrews here is answering the question. It was a copy, a mere shadow of what God intended ultimately, which would be Christ Jesus, the ultimate focus of our worship. We are not ritualistic people. We are not people of costume and and altars and sacrifice and rituals and censers and smoke and mirrors because there should be nothing in our worship that would distract us from the focus, which is Jesus Christ, our high priest, who serves and prays to the heavenly Father on our behalf. He is making this point, and he talks about Moses. He says, but the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator or manager or bringing it into pass is superior to the old one, and it is founded on better promises. And we will look at that this morning. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, the older covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. I want to stop there. We need to do some history, some biblical history, to try and catch us up with, quite frankly, what his audience knew very well, which was the history of Israel, the history of God's people. We're not necessarily always up to scratch on that. He talks here about an older covenant, and we're going to look at a new covenant. It is absolutely not coincidental, not because I planned it, 
but I'm fully convinced because God planned it, that on the day we would talk about the new covenant, I would get to stand and have the privilege of standing at the table that commemorates the new covenant. It is perhaps our greatest visual of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And it just so happens, not because of great planning, but because of God who lays out all things according to his awesome wisdom, that we would be here and celebrating visually the new covenant in Christ's blood and have this privilege of tracking and tracing and understanding how we got to this place this morning. Please understand one thing, and, and Pastor Steve, you couldn't have selected, I think, a better song to lead into our sermon today than the one we just did. At so many levels, in the lyrics of that hymn of praise and worship and adoration, it brings us to this moment. It brings us to the place to say, do we realize that when mankind rebelled against the living, holy, awesome, wonderful, incredible God, that he could have left us as rebels forever to simply die? There was no reason that God should have offered a covenant of relationship to a rebellious people and to go through all that God did in order to bring us to himself, stubborn, rebellious, self-willed people who didn't want anything to do with God in and of ourselves. There's no good reason under God's green earth that he should have taken us unto himself and done whatever he did. But John 3.16 tells us why he did. For God so loved the world. Aren't you glad for that? If God didn't love us, he would never have done this. But because of the immense love of God, he graciously put together a plan, of course, that was from all eternity, but enacted a plan, covenant, agreement, that would show people the way to walk righteously before God and to have a relationship with him. By his grace, he reached out to us and offered us an amazing plan. And so we track in, old, in, in biblical history the, the grace of God in offering to us salvation through a series of covenants or agreements or uh, like um, promises uh, from a will. I will do this for you in a variety of different covenants, beginning with the Adamic covenant where he gave us as human beings the responsibility to be vice regents of his creation and to, to uh, multiply and fill the earth and be blessed by God. And if we pay attention to his covenants, we enjoy the blessings of God in our life. And then as you know, Adam and Eve failed on that covenant. Then there was the Noahic covenant after the flood where once again by God's grace, he 
reminded them, I'm willing to bless you. I'm willing to cause you to multiply and fill the earth and, and, and everything I've given you in the earth will be for your food and all the grand things that God had done for us. And he gave a sign of his covenant and the Noahic covenant. Do you remember what the sign is? The rainbow. And then, of course, there was the Abrahamic covenant where God called Abraham Genesis 12, out of his people, and promised him that he would make out of his name, uh, 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 that he would bless from Abraham all the nations of the world. And that covenant that continues forward is the covenant that God has made, and we are brought into that promise through the Abrahamic covenant. Then he made the Mosaic covenant where he brought Moses up into Mount Sinai and wrote on tablets of stone the law of God, how people could live righteously before our living God. But at that point, at that point, I want to stop. That would be about 1450 uh, BC. I want to stop there and I want to point out to you that Moses noticed something with respect to the covenant and the challenges of the covenant that the writer of Hebrews and later prophets are going to point out as we track our journey from the older covenant to this better covenant, the new covenant. Moses in Deuteronomy 29, after he had wandered around with the people for a number of years and had certainly seen their flaws. Can you imagine? 40 years. What if we were in a big group just wandering around a bunch of real estate together for 40 years. And you were all whining and groaning and complaining all the time. I would give the leadership to Pastor Kelvin. Because <laughs> he's bigger. But here they are wandering around and Moses summons all of the Israelites and says to them in, in 29.2, your eyes have seen all that the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials and to all his land. You have seen the splendor of your rescue from captivity. You've seen all the awesomeness of God and what he can do. With your own eyes, you saw those great trials, those miraculous signs and great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. You are ever seeing, but never embracing. You are ever hearing, but never welcoming. You have seen the best of the power of God and you reject it because it's not in your heart. You see it with your eyes, you hear it with your ears, but you don't love it with your heart. This was the beginning of insight into the problem of the Old Covenant. It was written on a tablet of stone 
And people could see it, and they could hear it, but they didn't love it. And so we move a thousand years forward to Jeremiah. And in this, of course, the preacher's trying to make the point that none of this new covenant teaching should be a surprise to you. The living God has prophesied that the older covenant would be bypassed, would become obsolete, and there would be a new covenant. Jeremiah says in verse thir- chapter 31, 31, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. And it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Why? Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. 530 years later, Jesus comes, rides into Jerusalem on the back of a colt, the triumphal entry, and everybody's singing, praising, and enjoying themselves. And Jesus comes to the crest of the hill and looks at Jerusalem, and while everyone else is singing and praising and rejoicing, he cries in Luke 19 and verse 43 and 44. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus told them that there was a time coming very shortly where the old covenant ceremonies and rituals would give way to something different because they were rejecting Messiah. And he wept. And it was these very things that he said that were used and dragged up at his trial to bring accusation against him that he had threatened the temple. And he was executed and crucified by the Jews. Five years later, 35 AD, one of the first leaders of the New Testament movement by the name of Stephen stood before the Jews and preached a powerful sermon about the coming of the new covenant, that the old covenant was passing away, that in the coming of Jesus, the new covenant was here and upon them, the one that had been prophesied by Jeremiah 
and hinted at by Moses and all the prophets. It was now here. And in Acts chapter 6, they brought accusation against Stephen. Acts chapter 6, verse 13 and 14, they produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law, which he was not doing. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And they all picked up stones and threw them at him until he died because he threatened them with the truth that the old covenant was giving way to a better covenant in Jesus Messiah. 30 years later, 65 AD, a bold and courageous preacher whose name we do not know, it's known only to God himself, stands before his Jewish congregation and gives the same message that Jesus gave and Stephen gave and they were executed over. So if you're wondering what kind of boldness this pastor had, what kind of courage the preacher of Hebrews was all about, he put his life on the line for this sermon. As he stands before them and says, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the new covenant, or this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear and then maybe he might have put his hands up to get an awareness of the people who were sitting in front of him know this that they were at a moment of decision it's either go back to your old ways the old covenant that's passing away or follow Jesus Messiah and the new covenant which God has prophesied and is now being fulfilled but in that moment of decision we need to understand the situation with those Jewish people Jesus had already been crucified for this message Stephen had been killed for this message others were being slaughtered for this message now they had a decision to make because to follow this gospel to follow this truth would mean they would have to turn their backs on their families and be thrown out of the synagogue Everything they had ever known, which they thought was right, was now changing. Not that they shouldn't have known. They should have known. Their very scriptures were being fulfilled. But they were making a choice that now their family may even execute them. But on the other hand, they were in a Roman context where the Romans hated Christians and hated this new religion and were also persecuting them. No matter what choice they were to make, 
It was life and death. As they sat there listening to this message, they were making a decision perhaps for their own death. And frankly, we have it so easy. It boggles my mind that people could sit in a congregation like this and waffle on this decision. Resist this decision. The cost is virtually nothing. Or that we might be disloyal to our Lord. For what? Some strange friend who doesn't want to be your friend anymore? What's the biggest persecution that we face? If we can't embrace with our hearts the truth of Messiah, Jesus Christ as Lord in this good time, how will we ever stand for him when things become difficult? The new covenants replaced the older covenant, and his name is Jesus. And there are no weaknesses to this new covenant, no structural weaknesses. You see, five years after he preached this sermon, General Titus of the Romans brought his soldiers into Jerusalem and they pushed over the temple and destroyed the city 70 AD 3 years later the last holdouts of Israel and Masada gave way and Israel totally capitulated what the Jews were unwilling to do by faith the living God did by force through Rome he used a pagan nation to push over the last vestiges of the old covenant and there it lies today on the pavement in Jerusalem never to be put back together And he tells them, it is for your eternal good that these sacrifices are done away with, the priests are done away with. They were going to witness this five years later. The truth of this, he, was, he said the very words, what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. For us, we're looking at this and say, when? It did. It did. No priests, no altars, no sacrifices, no censers, no smoke, no ritualistic equipment and furniture, nothing. Because Christ is the altar. Christ is the priest. Christ is the place of worship. Christ is the censer. Christ is the smoke. Christ is everything and everything. 
And it's a better covenant. Three ways. The time is coming when I will make a new covenant. It will not be like the covenant I made with your forefathers because I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. What is our covenant? The new covenant is better because it's an inside operation. It's not external. It's in the heart. It comes from the heart. It changes everything. What I see with my eyes or what I hear with my ears is something. But what I really, really have treasured in my heart makes all the difference in the world. That person in your life, spouse, child, whatever, it's not because of the visual, it's not because of what you hear. You love them because it comes from the heart. It makes all the difference in the world. This Christ has come and given us actually a new heart. The heart that they were living with in the old covenant saw the law written on tablets of stone, but now the will and law and righteous ways of God is written on hearts so that I have now a new heart that is inclined to embrace it, what I never used to have before. I could read the Bible. We can give people the Bible to read. They can read the, the pages of the Bible. It means nothing to them. It's just words on a page. It doesn't move them. They don't obey it. They don't have any inclination to obey it. They don't even understand it for the most part. But when now in the new covenant, Christ has placed it in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come to live inside of us. It makes all the difference in the world. Now it's more our supernatural nature to say yes to God. It's actually against our new nature to say no to God because it's in our heart. When I go up driving around and I see a sign that says 50 kilometers per hour, which is the law, I see it in my eyes. I can hear people chirping in my ears. But somehow, that law's just not in my heart. Because in my heart, it's like, well, whoever invented that speed doesn't know how people can drive. No, I, I kid you. It's an illustration of people I know. It was imperative that the law was taken into the heart. Because if it's in your heart, you have a whole different disposition toward the rules. They're good for you. They bring life. They are the right thing. And you know it in your heart. So our desires change, our sensibilities change, our sensitivities change. Jesus fixes us from the inside out. What the law could not do because people were disobeying it, Jesus does 
from the inside. He changes us. Aren't we being changed? Aren't you being changed by Jesus? He changes us. Costumes and style and orders of service and time, that's not what changes us. It's Jesus. He changes us. And so we grow in him. But not only was the law written in their hearts, he says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer will a neighbor have to teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. Not only is this an inside operation, but it's a highly intimate reality. When Jesus the Christ, by his spirit, moves into our life, God draws near. We now know him. We know the Lord. We ask each other, you know the Lord? I mean, that's kind of the language we know and we understand. And if someone looks at you like, what are you talking about? We know they don't know the Lord. If I ask somebody, do you know the Lord, Richard? Of course he knows the Lord. That nod was very convincing. (laughs) I know the Lord. We know the Lord. Do you know the Lord, Don? Yeah, I know the Lord. I know the Lord. We walk to people. We know what that means. You know the Lord? Yeah, I know. I know him by experience. I know him. I experience him. I know who he is. It says in the Bible that Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me. There's a whole difference between what it means to be a Christian. You know, um, when... Uh, you ask people what is the definition of a Christian regularly like uh, their eyes glaze over and they're not really sure what you're talking about they say well define a Christian I always want you tell me what a Christian is you say you're a Christian you tell me what a Christian is so well a Christian goes to church Christian reads their Bible Um, a Christian believes in Jesus well yeah well yeah that's what that's what describing a demon now I want you to describe a Christian so what Demons come to church. Demons know the Bible. And demons believe in Jesus. What we're describing here today is New Covenant Christianity. It's distinctly different than that. It means that you have your heart in this. It means that Jesus is living inside of you through Christ from the least to the greatest. There's no hierarchical reality here. The least will know him, the greatest will know him. You don't come before Jesus and he doles it out and says, well, you're important in life, so I'm gonna give you a lot and you're not so important in life, so I'm not giving you very much. No, the least, the greatest, we will know him. And we share with each other, you know the Lord? Yes, I know the Lord. The man of God or a woman of God, that's our definition. That's who we are, that's our identities. Young people of God. We get closer, we draw closer. But there's a final, a third that's better, third reality that's better. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Say, so, well, wait a second, weren't, weren't people in the uh, old, older covenant forgiven? Why would God say that I will give them a new covenant and I will forgive them and remember their sins no more if everything was all right in the Old Covenant. They were not forgiven 
their sins were covered temporarily that God might approach, that they might approach God. And he did not forget their sins. It was not until Messiah took our sins and their sins and the sins of future generations and took them and nailed them to the cross that in Christ we are forgiven. This is the capstone of the new covenant. We are forgiven because God the Father forgets our sins and remembers them no more. He writes, he preaches later in Hebrews 9 that the older covenant people were constantly having a conscience problem about their sins. Day after day, there were sacrifices being offered. Why? Because their sins were covered, but they never had a sense of forgotten. The new covenant has brought something better. Jesus forgives our sins and they are cast as far as the east is from the west. Our Father chooses to forget our sins. And so we are forgiven. We live free of sin. That's why Jesus called it the new covenant in my blood. That's why it is impossible to come to God and bypass Jesus. It's impossible. Your sins can never be forgiven and forgotten. And therefore, you can never approach God. The amazing truth here is this. Jesus has done for us what we can't do for ourselves. The proof was in the older covenant. They could not keep the covenant. And sadly, there are people who struggle to understand or embrace Christianity because they are firmly convinced that they have to keep themselves saved, that they have to keep the commitment that they have made. That's precisely what we can't do. We can't keep it. We never could. The history of humankind is you can't keep the rules. But when Jesus makes the rules your heart and moves in and empowers you to live out the truth and forgives you and forgets your sins and empowers you not to sin, then you can do what you couldn't possibly have done because Christ does it for you. That's the new covenant. So praise him. Praise the Lord. In her book, The Whimsical Christian, Dorothy Sayers uh, reports or records that the general population in terms of its assessment of Christianity or of Christians says that Christian, Christians are different from the world in only three ways. They keep Sunday worship. They don't get drunk. 
and they shun immorality, which statistically, by the way, we're fooling them. There is something horribly wrong when the world looks at us and says, you are no different than us except you go to church, you don't get drunk, and you somehow control your sexual behavior. Jesus died to change us for so much more than that. That our lives are to grow in holiness because it's in our heart to be holy, to want to live for Christ. It's, it's in our heart to get closer to God. Why we've gathered, isn't it? That we want to draw near to God and take opportunity to do that. And to live forgiven of our sins. And to have Christ forget our sins of the past. Gives us new joy and encouragement to live for him and not to sin for what he's done for us. That's what the world should see. Our hearts, our love for God, our avoidance of sin of any variety, that's the difference they should notice because that's New Covenant Christianity. And so I invite you, brothers and sisters, to celebrate the ceremony that commemorates the very thing that Jesus Christ has done for us. Oh, Father, I pray this morning as we pour out our hearts to you in thanksgiving and in urgency, oh God, where we have failed you, where our hearts have become cool, where our testimony has become sullied, oh God, forgive us. Bring us into much more, oh God. You have given us in the new covenant a relationship of intimacy from the inside out, forgetting our sins and forgiving us. Oh God, we truly live with great joy. May it be reflected in our lives, I pray for Jesus' sake, amen. Beloved, let us never grow arrogant or prideful about our insights into the new covenant and our embracing of it in such a way as we look down on our Jewish friends. Know this, that the new covenant was made to Israel in the house of Judah. The living God never ever made a covenant to the Gentiles. We are amazingly graced. As Paul writes in Romans, you have been grafted in to the true Israel. It is the faithfulness of our Jewish heritage that we have the gospel. Jesus was a Jew. The disciples were Jews. It was faithful Jews passing it on to faithful people. And we happen to live in this glorious moment whereby God has chosen to graft in some Gentiles 
but the covenant remains with Israel. We are enjoying the blessings of the covenant because God has brought us in. But his plan for Israel continues. And someday, many Jews will recognize the truth of this new covenant and embrace Messiah. Christianity is a Jewish religion. Never forget, it's who we are. Our Father, we praise you, we thank you, we love you. We are indebted to you. A debt we could never repay. That Christ would do it all for us and then graciously bring us to himself. So Father, we just thank you. We praise you. Help us to live for you with passion, O oh God that the people of the world would notice more than we go to church and we don't get drunk and we have sexual control. Oh God, you died for so much more than that. Your son died for so much more than that. Would you please, oh Lord, fashion in our hearts and in our lives something more reflective of the truth of the new covenant? For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.